Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where John is given a vision into the very throne room of God before he ever sees anything that is going to take place on earth. Before God shows him what must take place on earth, he first shows him what is taking place in heaven. And we said that the purpose is to show John that whatever takes place on earth, that God is in control and also provides the framework through which we're supposed to interpret the rest of the book. As we said over the past two weeks, we are tempted to get very sidetracked and distracted by all the symbols that we see throughout the remainder of the book. Chapters four and five keep us grounded uh, and keep us knowing that no matter uh, what all of the symbols might mean, what we're really supposed to see is that God is in control and that he is conquering through the cross of Jesus Christ. But today, we see the first of the symbols that we are tempted to get distracted by, and that is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I've called this passage unexpected comfort in expected times. And the idea of four horsemen of the apocalypse is something that carries on even into popular culture, uh, even into things that don't have anything to do with the apocalypse. Uh, As a kid, I wasn't really interested much in scripture, but I was interested in sports and history. And so my first exposure to the phrase, the four horsemen was about uh, the Notre Dame football team back in the 1920s. And of course, that's not at all what the four horsemen here in Revelation 6 are, uh, but it is just indicative of how much the symbolism of Revelation infiltrates our culture. And yet, even with that, As you'll see as we walk through the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 6 today, ultimately, we need to keep focused on chapters 4 and 5 and what they tell us about the remainder of the book. And so we will be trying to uh, not get distracted by all the symbolism in in Revelation chapter 6, but instead interpret it through the framework of chapters 4 and 5. And so follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held the bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth, so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. 
as we've said, there's a lot here that we can be tempted to get distracted by. Uh, a lot of symbolism, a lot of things that we would really like uh, to know exactly how this, this looks when it's being played out on earth. A lot that we'd like to know about exactly what the timelines are. Uh, but we're going to try and stick with what we actually see in the text. And in Revelation, we're not always sure about the time frames, uh, about when things happen in relationship to each other. Uh, but one thing is clear as we start off Revelation chapter 6 is that this is a continuation of what we saw in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 5, in chapter 5, John sees a scroll in the right hand of the one who was on the throne, and, and no one is found worthy to, to break the seven seals that are on that scroll, except for the Lamb who was slain. And here in chapter 6, we see the Lamb, having taken that scroll, now begin to open the seals. And so this is flowing out of chapters 4 and 5, another indication that we are expected to interpret it through chapters 4 and 5. And what we see here in the text is really three things that we can uh, see about God's judgment in these first four seals being broken, and even in ways that we can apply to our own situations today. And the first of those is that we should expect our suffering. We should expect our suffering. This is the first of three series of judgments in the main body of the book of Revelation. Uh, here you have seven seals being broken, uh, then you have seven trumpets being blown, and then you have seven bowls being poured out. And I don't think these are three consecutive series of judgments, but three concurrent series of judgments. John is given uh, the same vision three different ways. He is told the same thing is going to happen three different times in three different ways, uh, sometimes with slight alterations, uh, but all with the same main point. And what we really see is that this is not some special series of judgment that awaits some future date, but this is what life is like from the time that the Lamb who was slain takes his rightful place on the throne of God and when he returns to, to make all things right. Uh, giving the three sets of judgment three different ways indicates that it's a cycle. This is what life looks like in the end days. This is what life looks like in the end times, in the last days. And we are living in the last days. We are living in the end times. The end times are everything between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And what you see here in Revelation chapter 6 is very much what you see even in Jesus's ministry. In Matthew chapter 24 and in the synoptic gospels you see similar uh, things about what Jesus says will take place at the end times. And in Matthew 24 6 he says you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. And so in the last days, creation itself, even as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, is groaning. 
It's experiencing labor pains, waiting for the new to be birthed. And just as uh, a, a woman in labor getting ready to give birth experiences pain, so as creation gets ready for new birth. There are going to be pains, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, there are going to be famines and natural disasters and, uh, and plagues and all of the things that you see in Matthew 24 and in Revelation chapter 6. And we don't need to be looking forward to some future uh, apocalyptic scene to get that. We just need to look around us even today. And we are filming this in 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And within the last month or so, we've had all kinds of civil unrest related to racism and police brutality. And protests have taken place throughout the country and statues have been torn down. And there's been civil unrest and conflict between people in the midst of a plague that we're already experiencing in the in the midst of an economic crisis that we're already experiencing and so as we live in this time in 2020 and we hear of wars and rumors of wars as we hear of uprisings as we hear of financial difficulties as we hear of plagues we should be recognizing that we are in the end times and this is what living in the end times looks like. Again, the context for Revelation chapter 6 is Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, we had seen that it is through the cross that Jesus conquers. He is called the Lion of Judah, but John sees him, we see him as the Lamb that was slain. And so, we are shown that this is what life is is going to be like this is what we should expect and this is not the first time in revelation that we see this back in revelation chapter 1 verse 9 john had introduced himself to his readers by saying i john your brother and partner in the affliction kingdom and endurance that are in jesus was on the island called patmos because of the word of god and the testimony of jesus this is what life is like for those who are in Jesus. This is what life in Jesus looks like, according to John. Affliction, kingdom, and endurance. And as we said way back at the beginning of the series, the way that we experience the kingdom of God here and now is by enduring in the affliction. Jesus again said this at the Last Supper as he prepared to prepared his disciples for when he would no longer be with them after the cross and after the ascension and he says in John chapter 16 verse 33 I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace you will have suffering in this world be courageous i have conquered the world that word for suffering in John 16:33 is the same word affliction in Revelation 1 verse 9. And so Jesus tells his disciples, tells us that in this world we will have suffering, we will have affliction, we will have tribulation. And our comfort is not that we're going to avoid it. Our comfort is that he has conquered the world. 
And of course, Revelation tells us how he has conquered the world. We saw that in Revelation chapter 5. He has conquered the world through the cross. It is through the suffering of the cross that Jesus won the victory. And so it is with us as well. God's victory for us is brought about through suffering. And we'll look at God's purposes for this a little bit later on. But the point here is that we should expect our suffering. Jesus' half-brother James uh, also told his readers to expect it. In James 1-2, he said, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, not if you experience various trials, but when you experience various trials. The assumption is that we would experience them. The author of Hebrews says the same thing, that, that it's not if we are disciplined in our suffering, but when we are disciplined in our suffering. And so Jesus tells us, John tells us, uh, John's vision tells us that we should expect our suffering. This is what life looks like between the cross and the return of Jesus Christ. And it is through the cross that Jesus conquers. And so he conquers us through his cross. It is as we experience our cross, as we take up our cross daily and follow him, that he has victory in us and through us. And it's through the suffering that has been unleashed on this world that he is going to have the victory. And so we should expect our suffering. Secondly, we should look for God's mercy. We should look for God's mercy. We aren't going to spend a ton of time on this point, uh, but it is a point that is here in this text. We'll see it a little bit in verse 9, which we did not read, but as the fifth seal is broken, John sees the soul's of martyr Christians crying out to God. And they cry out, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? And it seems that in this chapter, as these judgments are being poured out, that all of these judgments are in response to the cries of God's people. That this is how God is answering the question posed to him by these martyred souls. That as they cry out, how long, O Lord, until you judge the earth. That this is God's answer. That he is already doing it. And so, even in the midst of these judgments, God is working out his purposes for his people, as we'll see a little later on. And we see that even here in verse uh, 4, for example, in the second seal, as the fiery red horse goes out and its rider is allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. That word slaughter in Revelation is almost always used in connection to Jesus and the martyrs. Uh, and the only times it's not really is when it is used in reference to uh, to the beast and his followers in, in, in kind of a, as they are, are uh, putting forth a counterfeit version of the faith. And so the, those being slaughtered in verse 4 seems to be believers. Uh, believers experiencing this tribulation, experiencing this suffering, this judgment that is being poured out 
on the earth. Uh, and so it's in the midst of this that God is bringing about his purposes for his people. And yet we see it again in verse 6 with the third seal being broken and the black horse riding out. Uh, and we see uh, one of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. The black horse is a horse of famine and wheat and barley are, in, are so scarce that there is a high price for a small amount of them. But even in the midst of that is the black rider is given permission uh, to, to cause a famine among the wheat and the barley. He is told he is not allowed to touch the, wheat, the oil or the wine. And so even in the midst of that, God is making sure that the famine is not absolute. That he is protecting especially the least of these uh, who would be most affected by the famine. That there would still be oil. There would still be wine. And of course, oil is not only used for baking, uh, but was also used for anointing and for medicinal purposes. Wine, of course, there was no clean water. And so if there was no wine to drink, you could only drink contaminated water. And so even in the midst of the judgment, God is still providing mercy. He is not rendering absolute judgment. And so we should look for God's mercy because it's there, especially for his people. Even in the midst of judgment, God is withholding and providing mercy. And so we should expect our suffering. We should look for God's mercy. And finally, we should take comfort in God's sovereignty. We should take comfort in God's sovereignty. We saw last week that the scroll with the seven seals was in the right hand of the one on the throne. And Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is the only one worthy to take that scroll. And we said that that scroll is most likely God's purposes for his creation, especially his redemptive purposes for his creation. And that's why Jesus as the one slain was the only one worthy. Jesus, the one who purchased with his blood a people for God, uh, is the only one worthy to open the scroll because this is the scroll that will bring about God's purposes for his creation. And we see that here continue in chapter 6. And we should take comfort in God's sovereignty because one of the things that is being impressed upon John and upon us as we read this book is that God is in control of all of this. The riders are given a crown. They do not possess the crown themselves. They are given authority. There is a greater authority who is using them. And what we see in chapter 6 isn't God causing evil, but God taking evil that is already present and turning it for his own purposes. Uh, that just as Joseph's brothers intended evil for Joseph, God took that evil and used it for good, for the saving of many lives in Genesis chapter 50. Uh, so here, uh, even though the evil one might intend the wars and the famines and the plagues uh, and the natural disasters for evil, God is using them for his purposes, for his creation. As of course, the natural impulse in us is, is most likely, well, what are those purposes? What are we hoping that God is doing? Uh, especially if, as I, I believe, this is describing life as it is now. This isn't some future 
time period. This is what is taking place now. Uh, we are seeing the effects of the four horsemen now through COVID-19, through financial crises because of that, food shortages because of that, through the civil unrest uh, and throughout our country, the wars around the world. Uh, what should, what are those purposes that God is bringing about that can comfort us as we live through these times? Again, what provides, as I call this message, that unexpected comfort in expected times? If we're living in expected times of suffering, what is the unexpected comfort in war and death and famine and plague? And well, the first of God's purposes for uh, times like this, for these times of judgment, for these four horsemen, is it's his response to idolatry among his people. Uh, these, this image of four horsemen uh, shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament, in Zechariah. It shows up in Ezekiel chapter 14. Uh, there are also these same four horsemen that God sends out. And especially in Ezekiel chapter 14, it's very clear that these four horsemen are sent in response to idolatry among God's people. In Ezekiel chapter 14, starting in verse 4, it says, Therefore speak to them and tell them, This is what the Lord God says. When anyone from the house of Israel sets up idols in his heart and puts his sinful stumbling block in front of himself and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him appropriately. I will answer him according to his many idols so that I may take hold of the house of Israel by their hearts. They are all estranged from me because of their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, repent and turn away from your idols. Turn your faces away from all your detestable things. For when anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside in Israel separates himself from me, setting up idols in his heart and putting his sinful stumbling block in front of himself, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will turn against that one and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from among my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And a couple of verses later, the four horsemen are sent out in response to this idolatry among God's people. And so the first thing these judgments are a response to idolatry, and especially idolatry among God's people. And that's really the second purpose of these judgments is to purify God's people. It's a purification of believers. And you see that uh, in the fact that it is most likely believers being slaughtered uh, by the second rider. Uh, you see that in the fact that martyred souls are crying out to God, how long in Revelation 6, verse 9. And so, yes, there's an aspect where unbelievers are being judged, but uh, it is very much so as the unbelievers are judged, as the world is experiencing judgment, God is using that to purify his people. And this is so contrary to the way that we normally think. Uh, all you have to do is, is uh, turn on the TV or, or go online after any kind of natural disaster, after any kind of, of uh, major incident in our culture or in the world, and you'll hear some Christian leader uh, declaring that this is God's judgment on these unbelievers because of this sin 
that they're involved in. And we try and pinpoint, well, this is God's judgment, and so he must be judging for some particular thing. But I think uh, what's more likely is what Craig Keener says, a New Testament scholar in his commentary on this passage, says we must hear in the world's suffering, not condemnation of suffering individuals, but on a larger scale, God's calling for the world's attention. A God is calling for the attention of his people, particularly and for the world in general. And that is the third purpose of God in, this, uh, in these judgments, is that he is upending the world systems and asserting his right to rule. And what you see in these judgments is they are very targeted right from the beginning. And, uh, and I will say that in verse 2, we see a rider on a white horse. Uh, and while the rider on a white horse later in Revelation is Jesus, this most likely is not Jesus. But it is significant that he's a rider on a white horse and that he has a bow. Because what first century readers living in the Roman Empire would have thought of uh, as they uh, heard as they, or as they read this verse about a rider on a white horse holding a bow was the Parthenians who lived to the east of the Roman Empire. And in the 50s and 60s, a couple decades before this was most likely written, um, or maybe even just a decade if it's an earlier date for the book being written, the Parthenians had actually defeated the Roman Empire two different times. They're the only ones besides Hannibal that actually managed to do that. And so the, the readers in the first century would have thought of these archers on white horses who posed a major threat to the dominion of Rome. And so from the very beginning, these riders are showing that God is laying claim to the powers of this world. And each plague, each horse that goes out is really targeting a different aspect of the world system. And we said over the past two weeks that many of the plagues, many of the judgments throughout the book are reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. And that was the purpose of the plagues of Egypt as well. They were targeted at Egyptian gods and asserting Yahweh as the true God by exposing how fraudulent the other gods were. And so in Revelation, the judgments are targeting specific world systems, things that we put our trust in military might, the strength of our nation, our financial system, our healthcare system, our ability to rein in natural forces, to predict natural forces, all of the things that we put our hope and our trust in are being judged by these judgments. God is upending the systems of this world and asserting his right to rule and in so doing, calling for the world's attention, especially the attention of his people, to stop putting their trust in their nation, stop putting their trust in their military might, stop putting their trust in their finances, in their health care, in scientific achievements, and turn their attention to him as he is asserting his right to rule. This is what God is doing. And even as we look around the world and our country now and see all this civil unrest, 
as we look around and see the devastating effects both uh, in terms of health and in terms of economic collapse of COVID-19. God is calling us to stop trusting in America, to stop trusting in the American political system, to stop trusting in the American military, to stop trusting in capitalism or socialism or the American financial structures, to stop trusting in the American healthcare system, to stop trusting in scientific achievements that give us the illusion of having this world under control, and instead to trust in the only one who actually has anything under control. He is calling us to turn from the world and turn towards him. He is taking our idols away from us to purify his people. He is leading us along the narrow way of the cross that through suffering and through death, we might experience victory and life even as Jesus did. And so we should see these judgments in Revelation chapter 6. And we should hear a call to turn away from our idols and turn back to God. And brothers and sisters, this means that we need to be careful not to double down on our idolatry. Because that is a temptation I can feel in my own heart. That's a temptation I think many others are experiencing as well as I look on social media, as I have conversations with other believers. We are so tempted to double down on on our idolatry and think that by voting for the right candidate or the right party, uh, that somehow all of this will be fixed. That by having the right financial system in place, by rejecting either capitalism on the one hand or socialism on the other, that if we just pick the right one, that all of this will be fixed. Uh, That if we can restore our healthcare system, uh, pour enough money into it, or have uh, the right either uh, the public paying it or private paying it or, or whatever system it is, that if we just had the right health care system, all of this would be fixed. Or that we just need some more scientific achievement. And that the more we know about disease, the more that we know about the way the world w- works, that somehow we'll be able to rein all of this in. But that's Jesus' point all along in Matthew 24 is that we are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. It's going to be continuous. We are going to hear of natural disasters and plagues and famines. It's going to come time and time again. And it doesn't mean that we don't uh, do what we can to mitigate the effects, to care for the suffering. Even Jesus tells us in Matthew to care for the least of these during these end days. But it does mean that we do not put our trust in those things as a solution to our problems. Because the whole point of these things is to make us realize that it is only the return of Jesus Christ who will put all things right that will restore creation to what it was intended to be. And the more we hear of war, the more civil unrest we experience, the more plagues we go through, the more financial disruptions and collapses that we suffer through, the more our hearts should long for the return of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, if our heart is longing for something else instead, either a political victory or a a restoration of the economy or whatever else it may be, if our heart is longing for something else, 
It's a heart that it's a sign that our heart is not set on Jesus Christ. And so this is what is occurring as we see all of these things happening around us. God is in control. And he is bringing about his designed ends for his creation. But his mode for getting there, his method of doing it, looks a lot different than we would expect. It looks like the cross of Jesus Christ. It looks like enduring suffering and affliction and tribulation. Dying to self. That his life might be born in us and live in us and through us. That is unexpected comfort in expected times. That it is the very things that cause us uh, disruption, that cause us discomfort. It is the very things that make these times uh, so perilous, that make these times so unprecedented and uncertain, that are designed to bring us comfort and hope. That Jesus Christ is on the throne and he is coming back. That was Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Join us next time when we'll pick up with verse 9.